Well, good evening. If you would turn in your Bible to Jeremiah 17. What a delight it is to be back with God's people on Sunday night. These are special times for everyone who makes it a discipline. Thank you, Stephen, for leading us in worship. I want to pray for those that were in that wreck on the road. Um, don't know how bad it was. I know there were a lot of ambulances and fire trucks. And so as we go to the Lord and prepare our hearts to hear the word preached, let's also remember those that were in that accident. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we can sing this is our story this is our song that we can praise our savior all the day long because of your mercy because of your uh, your steadfast love lord your steadfast love endures forever as the psalmist says and so father we confess you are our god and earnestly we seek you this evening our souls thirst for you our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And Lord, we look upon you this evening in the sanctuary and we behold your power and your glory in the face of your son, our mediator, the God man, Jesus Christ, and by your spirit. Because indeed your steadfast love that we know supremely in the gospel of Jesus is better than life. And our lips will praise you tonight, and we will bless you. And Father, we confess that our souls are satisfied in you as with fat and rich food. Our mouths praise you with joyful lips. Uh, and Father, we confess that you have been our help. And in the shadow of your wings, we sing for joy. Our souls cling to you tonight, Lord. Our, your right hand upholds us tonight by your Son. And, and that's why we are gathered tonight. Lord, we do want to pray for those that were in that accident on, on Taylorsville Road. We pray for peace. We pray for mercy. Uh, we pray for sustaining grace. Uh, we pray uh, for everyone involved that you would sustain and preserve. We pray for the peace of Christ on their families. We pray for uh, the first responders and the doctors and the nurses we want to thank you for them, first of all. Uh, we want to thank you for those who are first responders. We thank you for police. Uh, we, we thank you, Lord, for those you raise up to, to protect us and to preserve us. And, and Lord, we just want to pray right now that you would hallow your name in that particular accident. And Father, we pray now as the word is preached in Jeremiah, we just ask that you would grant us ears to hear. Uh, a very important text from this inspired prophet. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, April the 14th, to be exact, Bernie Madoff died in prison at the age of 81 years old, having been sentenced in 2009 to 150 years in prison. Of course, he was the mastermind behind the biggest Ponzi scheme, securities fraud, in American history. Billions had been entrusted to him uh, by very wealthy investors in order to produce income, in order to produce investment growth, 
But it was all a sham. We know that now. Uh, there was no real investment. There were no real earnings. It was all a fraud. But he got away with it for a time and was not exposed until 2008 in the midst of that great financial recession. That's when everything fell apart for Madoff. The balloon payment came due. Uh, that recession brought about the failure of some massive financial institutions such as Lehman Brothers. And at that point, people lost a lot of faith in their financial institutions. So they began to take money out of Bernie Madoff's securities. And that's when a Ponzi scheme fails. It's not when you put your money in the scheme that it fails. It's when you try to pull it out, especially when everyone tries to pull it out at the same time and then discover there's no money, discover that the bank is empty. Prior to then, everything that had been paid out to the investors in his scheme, that money was coming from those who were paying in. But there were no investments behind those payouts. And too many want their money Guess what? It all crashes, and it cost investors some $20 billion, incredible amounts of money. Uh, many people who were wealthy, multimillionaires, went from being wealthy to completely impoverished. And that's why the judge who sentenced him uh, described him as extraordinarily evil. And, and he voiced frustration and concern that he could only sentence Madoff to 150 years in prison. In fact, as we know, he died this week. He only served 10 years of that sentence. But that shows you the limitations of, of human justice, doesn't it? As Dr. Moeller said this week on his uh, podcast, Bertie Madoff became a living parable of human depravity, but only the Lord can bring, bring true justice, and he does. And he brings justice, and he brings judgment to every metaphorical Ponzi schemer, and that's what we all are naturally. We are metaphorical Ponzi schemers who take resources entrusted to us and we invest them in pursuits that have no ultimate value. That's who we are by nature. We are Bernie Madoffs by nature. That's called idolatry. And in time, it gets exposed. The balloon payment comes due. Well, that's where Israel is. Uh, you could say more specifically Judah, because that's who he is largely prophesying to. It's where all of humanity is. And that's why this passage is not just for ethnic Jews. It is for all of humanity, naturally speaking. In fact, that brings us to the first four verses where they are getting exposed once again by the prophet Jeremiah. Now look with me in Jeremiah 17, verse 1. Now this, in fact, the first 18 verses, we'll only look at the first 
uh, 13 or so verses tonight. Um, this is all poetic language, but don't let the poetry um, confuse you. Uh, he is using poetic language to stir uh, the affections. There's, there is truth behind the poetry. And we see it at the very beginning. Verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. Now, again, uh, just to remind ourselves, Judah represents two tribes, right? Uh, Judah and Benjamin. Uh, Israel had been divided into two nations because of apostasy of the king in 931 B.C. And, and the ten northern tribes would go one way, and the two southern tribes would go another. So Judah represents Judah and Benjamin. The ten northern tribes have already been depopulated at this point. They, they, they have absolutely been destroyed and judged by the Assyrians. That occurred in 722 B.C. This is way after that. So Jeremiah is likely prophesying at this point in the first phase of a judgment that will result in exile. And, and we've already seen that drought is a part of the early stages of this judgment that will ultimately mean they will be taken into captivity some 500 miles away in Babylon where they would remain for 70 years. But he is prophesying at this time to these two southern tribes. You could call it Israel because the northern kingdom doesn't even exist at this point. But most specifically, Judah. He says the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. So a pen is a writing utensil, right? But this is a pen of iron, an iron uh, is a, a heavy, hard uh, material. And he says, with a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. So this is remarkable imagery. So this writing utensil, which is a pen of iron, has a diamond point. Just, just picture that in your mind. He is using this poetic language so that we can not only understand this intellectually, so that we can feel it, so that we can picture it in our minds. So this pen of iron has a diamond point. So this is a heavy, sharp writing utensil. And it sa he says this sin of Judah is written with this utensil with a point of diamond, and it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And so their heart is the tablet in which this pen is writing upon. So sin has been written on the heart by this, this pen of iron. What is he saying? He is saying that the sin of these people has gone down deep into the heart. This is not superficial sin. This isn't just sin at the behavioral level. This is written in the heart, the recesses of the heart. What is the heart? 
It's the causal core of our being. Everything we do is a result of what has captured our hearts. And, and so Jeremiah is saying sin has been written on their hearts, the very causal core of their being. As a result, everything they do is touched by it, is informed by it. As well, he says, it's been written on the horns of their altars. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, these altars, notice it's plural, is a symbol for the sinful worship practices at altars dedicated to the gods. Now, why would we say the gods rather than the living God? Didn't they have a, an altar uh, at the temple? Yes, one. But here, altars is plural. The plural altars here suggest the altars of Baal are intended because there's only one altar in Jerusalem at the temple. And I would submit to you the reason this is important, not just for that day and for the original audience, Israel and Judah were not a special class of sinner. When we read this, we are looking in the mirror at ourselves. We are by nature idolaters. We worship many gods, and sin has been inscribed by a pen of iron with a point of diamond on every single one of our hearts. And it informs everything we say and we do in our natural state. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians, put off the old self, because that is our old self. The old self has a heart where sin has been inscribed by this pen of iron and a diamond, and a diamond point. And, and this... this Sin has been revealed on the horns of their altars. And keep in mind, now this is very haunting, but it's absolutely the case. It impacts our children. Our sins and our idols impact our children. That brings us to verse 2. While their children remember their altars... No matter what you teach your children, they remember your altars. That's horrifying, taunting. They remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures. I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. This was where all the idolatry happened. They loved their sin so much that they passed it on to their children. So widespread was the pagan worship that even the children remember and were impacted by the altars and the Asherah poles. That's what he's saying. The, the Asherah poles were, were wooden poles set up as objects of worship to represent the Canaanite fertility deity, Asherah. 
And this was certainly forbidden by Jewish law, Deuteronomy 16. Uh, but they were located under trees and on hills throughout the land. These were the people that Jeremiah was preaching to. As a result, like Bertie Madoff, the balloon payment came due. All the spoil they, they thought they had gained by their metaphorical Ponzi schemes was going to Babylon. In other words, the enemy army is coming for plunder. Verse 4, you shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you. Remember, when you, the next time you think someone wicked is getting away with their wickedness, balloon payment always comes due. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. This is the Lord's anger. What did we look at this morning? That's exactly what we looked at. Isn't it amazing how these passages line up? The Lord is a God of wrath. And that's a holy wrath. Now, our problem is that we impute our... Because we know what kind of wrath we have. And generally, our wrath is selfish, self-absorbed, and, and it's a result of some functional idol that's taken hold of us. That is not God's wrath. God's wrath is holy, it's righteous, it's good. And it comes on the sons of disobedience. In fact, Paul said this morning, it is coming on the sons of disobedience. It's on them now. Now, maybe you've heard of the theologian C.H. Dodd. Um, C.H. Dodd had a huge influence on Southern Seminary in the pre-molar era. Uh, there were three less than conservative theologians that were the biggest influence on Southern in the pre-Moeller era. The reason I say that is because many believe that Dr. Moeller's Reformation was just a big political ploy. You'll hear that today, and it was, it's nonsense. Uh, it was thoroughly theological. C.H. Dodd, Reinhold Niebuhr, and Karl Barth were the, the theologians that most influenced the professors of Southern in the premolar days. It was said that the creed at Southern was this, I shall love the Lord, uh, my, the Lord thy Dodd um, with all my Bart and my neighbor as myself. That was the creed at Southern, and that's not a good creed. C.H. Dodd, one of the things that made him dangerous is that he popularized the idea that God's wrath is impersonal. It's just the working out of the laws of cause and effect, uh, sowing and reaping that, that people experience in the normal consequence of life. So if you drink a lot, you may get sclerosis of the liver. That, that's, that's the wrath of God. If you smoke a lot, you may get lung cancer. Uh, if, you, if you are sexually immoral, uh, you, you may develop some kind of, of disease. And that's the extent 
uh, of, of wrath. It's, it's impersonal. Um, so if a person commits adultery, uh, this person will reap the anger of his or her spouse. But God is not personally angry towards an adulterer. That, that was C.H. Dodd. And to give you the, the fancy term, it's called eminentism. Uh, the extent of the wrath is I reap what I sow in the here and now. Um, but Scripture presents the exact opposite picture, as we saw this morning. God's wrath is intensely personal. Uh, we are not pantheist. The Lord is a personal God. And, and Jeremiah has to establish this. In fact, he would agree with the great historian and theologian Ian Murray, who wrote this. Wheresoever God works with power for salvation upon the minds of men, there will come discoveries of a sense of sin, of the danger of the wrath of God. The knowledge of God does not first come to sinners with comfort. Rather, it is intensely disturbing. Ian Murray is making the point until someone recognizes the extent of their sin and the impending judgment of God on their sin, they will not find the gospel in any way compelling or comforting. And in fact, in his book, Revival and Revivalism, Ian Murray makes the argument that all the great revivals in history have come when preachers were preaching the coming judgment of God on unrepentant sinners. It's the only way to make sense of the gospel, of the good news. That's what Jeremiah is seeking to do. He's got good news throughout his book, but until you recognize the bad news, you will not see the good news as good news. And so in response, Jeremiah pronounces first a curse and then a blessing in this chapter. Notice in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed. Which is the opposite of blessing, right? So what did the Lord say to the, the serpent in the garden? Cursed are you. Cursed are you. And cursed are, is your seed. What did he say to Cain? Cursed are you. Genesis 4.11. And what did he say to Ham? Cursed are you. That's Genesis 9.25. And what did he say to Abraham? To those who dishonor you, I will curse. Here he is promising a curse on unrepentant Judah. In other words, he is treating Judah as the offspring of the serpent at this point. The one, he says, who calls his own strength, his greatest strength, is the one who is cursed. He is cursing here the self-sufficient. Now, how do we know if our trust is in our own flesh, our own strength? Well, I think about prayerlessness. 
Prayerlessness is a, is a hallmark of one who finds his strength in his or herself. But as I'm going to show you, he is indicting their lack of devotion to the Word of God. I'm going to show you that in time. I'm not just imposing that on the text. So they were demonstrating their self-sufficiency and their, their apparent, their own strength as their hope by the fact that their Bibles were closed and they were disregarding the law of God. And so this verse, though originally intended for 8th century Judah, I believe is a direct attack on Western culture. Uh, indeed, it's countercultural to say today, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Uh, you go to any seminar, unless it's a Christian seminar, and you hear the opposite story. Uh, this week I saw online a picture of a high school weight room that said, trust in hard work. Now, that sounds like a pretty good sign if you're an athlete. Uh, trust in your hard work, right? Uh, trust in yourself. Or to think of other disciplines, trust in, in technology, trust in economics, trust in psychology, Trust in medical science. Trust in a government party. Trust in the military. And, and, and Jeremiah says that mentality is worthy of condemnation. To help us understand the way we tend to think as Westerners, Ralph Waldo Emerson, his philosophy sums it up. In one of his essays... He entitled Self-Reliance. It came out in 1841. Uh, the title says it all. He tells the, the reader to be completely self-reliant. Insist on yourself. Jeremiah says that's your problem. Actually, the opposite of the case. Do not trust in yourself. To trust yourself is idolatry. And again, that's why when I pray... I am signaling I'm not trusting in myself. When I have my Bible open, I am signaling I'm not trusting in myself. I need, a, I need the divine mind to come to bear on my life and on my family and on my ministry. When I, when I gather as the people of God in corporate worship, I'm confessing I'm not trusting in myself. Self-reliance is under the curse, Jeremiah says. And as we saw this morning, the wrath is future, but it's also on the sons of disobedience now. Notice in verse 6, this kind of person uh, who is self-reliant, he says, and, and he's the master of the simile. Um, I, if you've noticed, teenagers love similes in every sentence. They use the word like in every sentence. Have you all noticed that today? Or is that just me? All right. Uh, I, I teach, I, I teach um, teenagers if, and have done so for 15 years, and I raise them. I've got a bunch of them in my home. I, I have lost count how many I have in my home. They love similes. Well, Jeremiah is really good at them. And, and here he says, this person who trusts in himself, and in the context, I believe it's a person who is not meditating and dependent on the law of God, 
this person, and I say that because I think he's picking up Psalm 1. This person is like a shrub. So he wants you to picture a shrub in the desert. And, and this shrub shall not see any good. No good shall come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So the shrub likely in question is the dwarf juniper. I had to look this up. Which has shallow roots. The, the man who trusts in himself is, is like this particular shrub. His roots are not deep enough to get water from the ground. He's not planted by the living water of the Lord. And so that is the person who is self-reliant and entrusting in himself. And, and that's why, again, listen, our kids pick up who we worship or what we worship. And, and, and if you don't want your kids to be like these shrubs in the desert... They, they have got to see it modeled for us, before them. And so even when the rain comes, it does them no good because they're like these shrubs with the, the very shallow roots. Conversely, notice verse 7. Conversely, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. So there's, there's two ways of living. This is like the Sermon on the Mount. It's either the life of the curse or the life of blessing. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So he, he repeats himself for emphasis. It's a way of doing that in Hebrew. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Then he's going to give you another simile. There is a... There is a a, a kind of shrub in the desert that does not benefit even if there was rain in the desert. But this person is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes. Not if he comes, when it comes. We live in a fallen world. For its leaves remain green. They're evergreen. And is not anxious in the year of drought. There will be years of drought in a fallen world. For it does not cease to bear fruit. I believe Jeremiah has been meditating. At this point, he would have, Psalm 1 would have already been written. And in Psalm 1, what does it say? Verse 3. This person that is blessed is like a tree planted by streams of water. It's the first psalm of the Psalter, which kind of tells you that it's the most important of the psalms. This, this person is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Jeremiah is meditating, I believe, on Psalm 1. And the reason I think that parallel is, is vital for us to understand this passage is that here it's the man who trusts in the Lord who is blessed. But in Psalm 1, 
It's the man who is blessed whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So which is it? Is it the one who trusts in the Lord? Or is it the one who trusts in the law of the Lord? Same thing. To trust in the Lord is to trust in his word, to his law. And to nourish that trust is to delight in the word of God. Now, at that point in time, their word would have been the the first five books in the Bible and certainly maybe some of the early historical books. But the key word in these verses is trust. Trust. Everything hinges on what or where one's heart is. And you can say you trust in the Lord, but if you do not meditate on his word, you're not trusting in the Lord. Because that's how the Lord communicates himself to us. We're not mystics. He comes to us through the inscripturated word. The incarnate word reveals himself through the inscripturated word by the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Philip Ryken points out that the land that lies, and, and he believes that the psalmist is, is meditating on uh, a particular plot of land in Israel. Uh, you know, these, these prophets, they, they use the created order to preach. I mean, they'll, they'll meditate on certain things about the created order, and it, and it teaches them things about the things of God. That's why Psalm 19 says that um, the, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And so Philip Ryken argues, and, and he's not being too dogmatic here, but I think he makes a good argument that there was this piece of land that lies to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee that's very dry. And, and the soil is very uh, rocky and, and dusty. It's like a desert, like he describes here. And the trees are not much more than shrubs. So they're like shrubs in the desert. Uh, there's little to no grass, and the trees are not much bigger, are not much more than shrubs. But right dab in the middle of, of that wilderness, of that desert, is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Uh, it's called Gan Hash Losha, translated Garden of the three springs. He says it's so beautiful that some rabbis have opined that it was the location of the Garden of Eden. So you have the pools, the waterfalls, they're filled with this deep uh, emerald blue cool water and they're continually refreshed by underground springs right there in the middle Flowers and bushes crowd the banks of the pools with palm trees providing shade. And he makes the argument that maybe Psalm 1 was inspired by musing upon that reality. And perhaps even Jeremiah's passage here. This is the person who trusts in the Lord. It's like this garden of the three springs in the midst of the wilderness. Now, in verse 9, he's going to go back 
uh, to the first four verses where he started. Because again, you've got to make much of the sin condition. There's not a single one of you that would have pursued a vaccination for COVID had you not first been convinced that COVID was a problem, right? Well, no one is going to be convinced of the good news of what God provides through his substitute until you're convinced of the bad news. So back to verse 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things. You're trusting in yourself? Your Bible is closed? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. He says, who can understand it? We dare not trust in ourselves. He says, our hearts deceive us. It's why we need our Bibles. We can't even understand our own hearts. Now, this verse is an emphatic denial of a popular belief today, even in the church, that people are basically good. I I saw a statistic. Yes, I put it in here. A George Barna poll where it says that more than 70% of professing evangelicals in America say that man is basically good. And if you read those uh, polls that Ligonier puts out every year, I, I think that uh, it would... I tried to find uh, the most recent one on the view of sin. It, will probably, it would probably make us very uncomfortable to see it. But in the 19th century, William Plummer said this, the truth is, no man ever thought himself a greater sinner before God than he really was. Nor was any man ever more distressed at his sins than he had just cause to be. Let me read that again. That is a profound and provocative thought. I fully agree with it. The truth is, no man ever thought himself a greater sinner before God than he really was. In other words, no one has ever thought themselves more sinful than they really are. (laughs) That's not our problem. Nor was any man ever more distressed at his sins than he had just cause to be. Uh, D.A. Carson, uh, some of you are familiar with D.A. Carson, who's been ministering to uh, college students uh, since the 70s, uh, the early 1970s, says this, the hardest truth to get across to university students is not the existence of God, not the Trinity, not the deity of Christ, not even Jesus' substitutionary atonement or Jesus' resurrection. No, the hardest truth to get across to this generation is what the Bible says about sin. And one of the great angst for Jeremiah is it was hard for Jeremiah to get that across to, to Israel. That's what was causing him so much pain, not just emotionally and spiritually, but, but also, as you read on in Jeremiah, physically. But regardless of what we might think about our sin or our own hearts, at the end of the day, it's the Lord who has the final say. And that brings us to verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, in other words, the Lord is the only one who can audit the inner realities of our hearts 
in an infallible way. And that, that's what Hannah's saying in, in 1 Samuel 2. We saw this a couple of years ago. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him all actions are weighed. It's the Lord who weighs our actions. How about David? And uh, he says in, in 1 Chronicles 29, 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. And, and we saw earlier in Jeremiah chapter 11, but O Lord of hosts who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. So in verse 9, we see that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Verse 10 The Lord is the one who tests the hearts and knows our hearts. Given those two realities, the worst news that we could ever ponder is the Lord knows my heart. Have you ever heard anybody tell somebody else? Has anyone ever told you, well, the Lord knows my heart? Uh, It's as if they are exonerating themselves. Uh, you're, You're not my judge. God is my judge, and he knows my heart. Well, given verse 9 and given verse 10, that's the worst news in the, in the history of the world. The Lord knows your heart? Well, that's bad news. That's not good news at all. In other words, the Lord who possesses comprehensive and perfect knowledge of all human motivation, intention, and action knows your heart. But given that, the Lord judges our actions, and he knows our motives, and he knows our hearts. How do you explain the wicked prospering? That's one of the issues in the Bible, and certainly with Jeremiah. That brings us to verse 11. We're coming to the close here. Like, another simile, like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. So he's pondering someone who, who's wicked and, and is, is, is not walking in faith. It's a person who's trusting in their own strength. How do you account for them prospering? That's one of the issues that Jeremiah is having to contend with. How do you account for that? I'm pronouncing judgment on their sin and they continue to, to prosper. There was a time that Bertie Madoff prospered. He, he He prospered for some 16 years. I think this Ponzi scheme lasted about 16 years. So maybe 15 of those years, it appeared Bernie Madoff was was getting away with his wickedness. No one knew but him. Well, he says, have you considered this particular kind of partridge? I don't know if this is true of all partridges. Uh, Carl would know. Uh, (laughs) But, but Jeremiah is pondering a particular kind of partridge that he has, he has um, observed. Uh, and and this, this particular partridge would function like a, a surrogate mother. This bird would go into another bird's nest and steal the eggs and bring those eggs to its own nest and hatch them as if they were theirs. Kind of like a Ponzi scheme, taking others' resources and using them for their own purposes. But what Jeremiah observed is he didn't keep those birds. Eventually, those birds would fly away. They would get away. Whether it was because they were eaten by predators or they just flew away. The point that he's making is that 
In the end, Ponzi schemers don't get away with anything. Jeremiah is appealing to that simile. And so the same one who, who gets riches by unjust means. It's the way of foolishness. But conversely, for the one who trusts in the Lord, let's close here, verses 12 and 13. This is a beautiful verse, verse 12. In the midst of verse 11, I didn't read the end of that. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. This is the person who appears to prosper for a time who is not trusting in the Lord. Uh, some of our young people will see wicked people on television who are, who are moguls and who are very successful in the life. And, and I'm sure it, it, it dawns on them that these people seem to prosper and they have no love for God. Well, they're like the partridge here. Eventually, it, it, they won't keep it, all right? Um, in the midst of his days, they will leave him. But verse 12, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. You can't lose that, Jeremiah says. A glorious throne set on high. Verse 12 is the anecdote for those who are tempted to trust in themselves. Everyone worships something. We were hardwired to worship. But for those who trust in the Lord, his throne is the sanctuary. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. This is where we worship. This is the place of our identity. This is the place of our purpose and worship. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Back to Jeremiah 2.13. They have home for themselves broken sisters uh, who, um, and home for themselves broken sisters who hold no water. So these two verses here affirm two things. The Lord is the only safe hope, but there is a choice being presented that all of us must face as a direct challenge. Back to 17.1, it was the horns of their altars that testified to their sins. Blood sacrifices to the false gods testified to their sin. That's what exposed them. <clears throat> but in a very ironic twist in rede redemptive history, there's one ultimate sacrifice that testifies to not only Israel's sins, but the entire world sins that no pagan altar could do. And that is the cross. That is the cross. The cross says that our sins deserve death. But the cross also says this is the length God will go to save sinners. So it's ironic. In this passage, Jeremiah is indicting them because of their altars. But there is another altar that indicts us even more significantly than these false altars. It's the, it's the place of the cross. Um, but the place of indictment is also the place of blessing. The place of the curse is also the place of the blessing. That cross says everyone will be judged. No one will get away with their sins. 
We're like that partridge that, that may steal and embezzle for a time, but the balloon payment comes due. The cross says every single person on the earth will be judged. But what the cross also says is those who will trust in the Lord rather than themselves have a substitute that takes the judgment for them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who, who come attentively to hear the word of Christ. Thank you for our friend, for our inspired prophet Jeremiah who preaches that word to us. Lord, I pray that each one of us would go our way this week more intentionally trusting in the living God and not in ourselves. May we evidence that by the way we pray and by the way we read and meditate upon, memorize and study and apply our Bibles. We ask this in the name, the matchless name of our greater prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.